Welcome to the Bailey. This is the episode. Um, I like it. This is the podcast where, yeah, yeah, it's good. This is the podcast where recorded episodes are edited promptly, inshallah. I'm your host, Yasin Masood. And today's topic is going to be the canon. And you guys can shut me down. I, I don't have to be annoying by continuously making <laughs> stupid jokes about, about artillery. <laughs> So we're not I actually going to be talking about artillery. We're not going to be talking about the history of gunpowder and pirates or uh, whatever. We're going like to be talking about, episode. yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's for like the gun show part two or whatever. We're going to be talking about what is broadly known as the literary canon. That's okay. We can, we can sneak in some artillery puns and discussions here and there, depending as so long as it's uh, pertinent. So we're going to be talking about the corpus of art, broadly speaking, in writing, theater, music, whatever, that is known colloquially or whatever as, as the canon. And this is the art that has, test, uh, that has survived the test of time, continues to be appreciated, dissected, and consumed to this day. And we're going to be talking about its relative merits, and how that ties into uh, culture war. So I think that's like as much of a introductory statement as I'll make. So let us introduce our panel today and we'll go around and you'll give your position statement on, uh, on this topic. Great Jasoni. Um, I am great Jasoni. I am um, very much in favor of the canon without any real qualifications. I think that um, I think it's self-evident that some works of art are better than others. They just have more aesthetic merit, and that um, you know, over the past, let's say, three thousand years, um, you know, civilization, the powers that be, artists, whoever, have curated the ones that were you know better than the rest of them. And so we have you know, I, I guess, going back to um, Homer and the Bible, and then you know, going all the way up through you know, Plato and Dante and Shakespeare, and then you can kind of get further, you know, um, to now, which I'm not super for, but I think that it is true that the older works that are traditionally considered canonical are better and as such should just be consumed by people who can handle them in that um, they just have more aesthetic merit. It's a very blunt way of saying it. Um, but I think there are other reasons for saying, you know, why people should take it seriously, essentially, that there is you can trace influences, um, you can find, uh, you know, traces of older moralities, older cultures that have sort of evolved into ours and see, you know, how different things are. They sort of transport you into different times and places of ways of thinking or you sort of you get uh, a glimpse into a mind that's much greater than yours by osmosis. Is, you know, you just have these people with these monstrous verbal IQs producing, you know, the best things anybody's ever produced. And it's sort of a waste to, uh, we, we have inherited that as, you know, people living in the modern day is that one of the advantages is that we get to, we get to stand on the shoulders of giants. We get to inherit all the art that our ancestors have given us, and it would be shameful and wasteful to discard it. All right. Welcome back into Reversity. Hey, I'm Interversity. I have no aversion to the canon. I like a lot of it, you know, I, I enjoy The Simpsons, I like Harry Potter, so, <laughs> you know, no problem with the canon, but I think that 
it's not necessarily better, you know, it has better aesthetic appeal than anything, you know, that things that are created today, modern works of art, in other words, can uh, surpass or be just as good as uh, things that we think of as canon. So uh, a big subject area kind of where I'd look at for that is video games, where I'd argue that some video games have become so aesthetically incredible and with so much work put into them that they could potentially qualify as canon. All right, cool. Kulak Revolt. So I'm a deep partisan when it comes to the canon. Um, I think the canon is broadly incredible, right up until the point where American literature gets involved, at which point it starts going off the rails. Um, <laughs> from the dawn of time to about 1700s in Massachusetts, all the great literary works were both popular works they had a great mass appeal. They were the equivalent of modern blockbusters or great paperbacks that sell millions. And they had a great literary appeal. So they were also what the learned class was, was studying, commentating on, drawing their metaphors from. And then right around the time the Puritans got to America, the, the canon split in half. There was popular works, there was genre works, and then there was literary fiction, which is essentially a status game that elites play to differentiate themselves from the lower classes. And essentially that division has prevented great works from being produced in probably like a couple hundred years. You can find exceptions in the American tradition. So Poe is an amazing poet and a great popular poet. Lovecraft, despite the fact that the academies have tried to bury him and not explore his works at all, is undeniably a popular and b an incredibly deep text but broadly america has not been able to produce anything approaching shakespeare homer even lesser figures like richardson or defoe that were able to be incredibly literarily rich and and immensely popular america is just inc has been incapable of doing that okay and uh, Tracing Woodgrains, hello. Hello. So, my thought on the canon, I think it's useful to split it into uh, two things, actually fairly similar to Kulak's distinction. Part of my motivation for originally agreeing to hop onto this is my deep and abiding hatred for The Great Gatsby, which I think <laughs> is... Preach! <laughs> one of the very worst books of all time. And for me, that book is emblematic of what I emotionally feel when I hear defenses of the canon. I hear people telling me to read The Great Gatsby and to appreciate it. And I will never appreciate The Great Gatsby. I think it's a crime against nature. <laughs> beyond that. The beyond, worst thing done in the 20th century. It, it was. It was. <laughs> I mean, objectively, really. <laughs> Wait, just no. just to be clear, you have read it. I have. And I... <laughs> okay. Yes, I have read it. You're aware uh, of the Holocaust. The what? Um, You're aware let's, of the let's focus. Let's focus on the important issues here. Let's yes. not get sidetracked so. by... Let's continue focusing on the important issue that The Great Gatsby sucks. Right. So, The Great Gatsby is a truly horrendous book, and it remains one of the most widely read canonical works that people are 
exposed to now. And I think when people place the canon as this idea of these are the great books that you should appreciate, and if you don't appreciate them, the problem is not with those books. The problem is with you. Um, I think that's a poor way to look at it. I think a more expansive interpretation of the canon can work, and particularly, I do agree that there is value to finding and cataloging and spreading in cultural memory the best works of the past. At the same time, while I definitely agree that there is a widely varying range of real merit to works, I get a little bit incredulous at the idea that uh, the classics from thousands of years ago were, in an objective sense, in this pure form, better than the best of what's produced today. I think you can find enormous aesthetic value in even things like, say, uh, My Little Pony fan fiction, uh, to take an extreme example. And I think there is a real skill tree to climb in something like that, and there are real works of artistic merit. Not saying necessarily that any specific My Little Pony fan fiction would belong in the canon, <laughs> but I am saying that it's not inconceivable that anything in that sort of obscure niche field that someone just hones and puts serious work and serious understanding into could reach those heights. And with as many people creating art as there are these days, and as many people creating remarkable art as there are these days, I think it's a bit myopic to assume that the canon is the best, though a case can still be made that because it has so much historic value, it's still worth remembering and worth studying, as long as we're talking about the canon with actual historic value and not the Great Gatsby. Okay, cool. So to introduce some continuity to uh, the Bailey's extended universe, I'm going to recall our episode on super stimuli. And there was a brief discussion on a thesis that I posited in that a lot of media consumption that we have available today is just the result of it just being so much better than what we had before. And I cited an example of just as an il illustration, the TV show, the prisoner from the 1960s and how, even though it's excellent by those standards, it kind of sucks for the vast majority of episodes, especially compared to the alternative offerings that are available today. So there is, I think uh, when we're talking about the canon, uh, maybe the first uh, issue to tackle is this uh, uh, selection bias in that only the semi-reasonably good works of art are going to survive thousands of years of history. Some things are going to be destroyed, some things lost, some things just plain forgotten. We're not going to see the great Gatsby of ancient Greece because no one would give a shit about it or maybe they would, uh, but no one's going to see it survive the light of day. And so modern day is not even, is never going to be privy to it. And we also have to take into account the, the ease of publishing nowadays. Um, whereas, you know, if you were in the 17th century, if you wanted to make art, you had to convince uh, an Italian nobleman to take you on as an artist in residence and for them to become your patron in order to have any chance of producing any meaningful work of art. 
Uh, whereas now, you know, you can just like illegally download Photoshop and just shit out whatever you want and post it online with no one stopping you, no one getting in your way. So availability of works nowadays is vastly superior in terms of number, in terms of ease of publishing. And so it's understandable to look at what is available writ large and conclude that on average, it might be garbage, especially when your only sample from before are things that were seen as so worthwhile and so deserving of preservation that people, they're willing to sink enormous uh, resources and including their lives in order to preserve it across thousands of years. So with that in mind, who wants to respond to that, I guess, um, the lopsided appreciation that historical works of art have compared to what is available in the modern world? Kulak. So that's broadly a very strong restatement of the classical theory of the canon. The fact that it is that a story has survived several hundred years across what will inevitably be multiple cultures lends itself to to a claim to universality and universal quality. Presumably, if something's merely popular, such as, say, the Twilight novels, 80 years from now, people aren't going to be reading them and going, oh man, this is exactly what we want. This speaks to everyone. Maybe they will, but... <laughs> But presumably, <laughs> once we when we transition into our weird post-Victorian culture, they won't see exactly the same thing in it. Although you probably can't guess these things, maybe Twilight will be the thing that's read two thousand years from now as the ultimate romance. So we'll see. Gregersoni, do you want to say anything on this point? Yeah, I think. Um, I, so I mean, you talked about like let's say there's a kid nowadays with Photoshop. Like there, there is a very real sense in which the modern world is much more um, egalitarian about who gets to be an artist. Um, but there's also a sense that the, the aristocracy in art has been lost and that the, this widespread uh, ideal of everybody being an artist is sort of crushed by the fact that we don't have patrons, that we don't have like... So let's say you convince an Italian guy to adopt you. Um, he's your daddy now, but now you have <laughs> a limited reign to create art all day, every day, like forever. And you don't have to worry about your bills or like providing for any, you just have this thing, right? You're not out there trying to please the market. You are pleasing the aesthetic sensibilities of this one Italian man. And if this Italian man has good taste, then you, your incentives are lined up to produce, you know, um, good art in the bounds of good taste far more than the kid with Photoshop who's being pulled in all directions by the internet. And then once he's, you know, has to get a job by the market. Yeah. So yeah, Italian daddies, they have good taste. And so you're not at the whims of the market, but I, I also think there's a sense that um, even in how we teach people to appreciate art, there's a sense that in the older system, in a system of patronage, you had a system of, of apprenticeship, right? And so I think the, the best example of this is uh, the box, right? The box were a musical family, you know, there were many, many dozens of them over this generation and they just kind of stayed in their little corners of Germany and they were just, they were famous for just being the musicians. And um, so if you were Johann Sebastian Bach, you grew up and all your brothers and sisters and your parents and your aunts and your uncles, everybody lived in a little thing and everybody was a uh, world-class musician. And they drilled you from, you know, age two till, you know, what, uh, however, I mean, till Bach died, basically, you know, he was immersed in this one profession. Well, as you know, the kid using Photoshop, unless he is you know, like, well, we don't necessarily have equivalents to that today. We don't have, you know, we have some musical families here and there, but it just, 
it isn't so widespread back then, you know, you had the, the, the blacksmiths and just the professions were kind of divided up in a familial way, but this means that you could be taught in a way that's so much more intimate than a kid just sitting around discovering on the internet and then just going off whatever, you know, talent they might have. It's there, there are better ways of getting better at things if you have the proper tutelage than just doing it on your own. And because we lack that, then I, I don't see our institutions being able to create art that is on par with Bach anymore. We just don't, it just doesn't exist. So what, what is, what is your argument that Italian daddies are uniquely positioned to be excellent arbiters and gatekeepers of art? They're not uniquely positioned, but they do better than the market. I would say. Why? Generally like uh, the, the rich people of old, they didn't, they sat around all day and became um, obsessed with aesthetics. They weren't just like sitting around, um, you know, like modern art, Nowadays, it's like a money laundering thing. Back then, it was uh, everybody was playing music all the time. People were creating things. They were commissioning things for certain works. Art had a much more central role in society. And so the aristocracy, they, they had a sense to, they, they were incentivized to develop good taste, essentially. They weren't just picking random people. It wasn't, I mean, sometimes they would. They'd pick, oh, I'm going to make my nephew, you know, the patron of this, uh, you know, he's going to be the king's royal artist or whatever. But it wasn't... Um, generally the king wants a good artist and the king wants to flex on other kings and they want to show off, oh, hey, I got this guy, I got that guy. There's a there's a, a method of competition there that incentivizes them to pick the correct people. Okay, I, I want to kind of drill down into how exactly that mechanism would work. Uh, why exactly would uh, Italian daddies... I love that we're just going to use that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> why exactly would uh, Italian daddies be incentivized to have quote unquote good taste and let's try to unpack that what would good taste mean in this instance and how would the incentives line up to that mm. i mean i i don't know i can maybe take a shot at talking about that introversity what i think i understood from great just i was there's the italian daddies have kind of single or nearly single incentives they are purely, you know, whatever this one guy is purely concerned with you painting him the most perfect impressionist paintings of like garden scenes or some shit, you know, whatever. There's a very specific uh, aesthetic that they search for. And then they have someone who just spends their whole life perfecting that and doing variations on it and all this versus, as we said, the kid with Photoshop. He, he could be taken in by any of 10,000 plus different subcultures, any one of which may have no concern with aesthetic value at all or some value or more value. And then he has incentives to, to make memes. He has incentives to have humor. He has incentives to, you know, do all these other things that aren't spend all my time perfecting the aesthetic value of a particular subculture or sub part of of the art world is that about right yeah kulak my question would be why wouldn't that be happening currently like presumably jeff bezos zuckerberg peter Thiel, rupert murdoch all of them they have aesthetics that they like weird aesthetics but aesthetics presumably like they would be going out and finding they're one great artist who best embodies the vision, the aesthetic ideals that Rupert Murdoch likes, and then 
like throwing money at them. Great to Sony. Um, I think that kind of goes back to what you were saying about American literature is that, or even if we could go back to the great Gatsby is that there's this kind of theme of the old money and the new money is that the older aesthetic tradition. Um, I mean, it, it was based in, I mean, the Catholic church and then eventually, you know, the, the, the patrons all split off, but they had kind of this um, cultural shelling point around which like they could coordinate everything. They had some idea of what was good and that it was based on the canon of art before them. Right. And so good taste was, and maybe this is just kind of like a, a circular definition, right? But it's that they looked at the good things in the canon that made them good, and then they would make things that would build on that. And now the the new money, I guess it's Silicon Valley, is we've essentially, we've mostly culturally withdrawn appreciation of this stuff away. We don't educate people on it so much. And so we can't necessarily trust them to have good taste. Um, but further, I think in the 20th century, in the art world across almost every domain, um, the the aesthetic philosophies essentially abandoned. Um, they abandoned their canons. They abandoned. I mean, and and if you look at like modernism in general, all of the good modernists, like the ones we remember today, or I mean, it kind of depends. But I think people like Joyce or um, Stravinsky, Eliot. Um, they're people who started off as revolutionaries, and they said, "Oh, this is all this stuffy old." you know, the, the, the romantics in this, they were, you know, building up this ancient thing that has no value. It was just this arbitrary status thing. I'm going to push through and create some truly revolutionary art that reflects, you know, some lofty sentiment of the people or this new, you know, uh, it, it, it's a death of God thing. And the, the ones that we still remember, they eventually turned around and became conservative again. And that they turned around and said, Oh, I can't actually get anywhere on my own. And they sort of, they dug back, they found the older pieces of, of art and then they kind of, they still created radical things with those things as a basis, but they kind of had to dig back into the older forms. And I think nowadays our, our culture, especially at the aristocracy is so divorced from that notion that we can't trust them to be good patrons. We don't have an artistic thing to build on except for like the guy that, uh, you know, here's a urinal. That's our high art. Okay. So, why isn't a urinal high art? It's a urinal. Okay. But it seems like they aren't even like patronizing bad art. Like, like they're like, sure. The billionaires might not have tastes that match some aesthetic ideal they have, but you can't even point to like, I don't know, some version of the Sistine Chapel painted by Bob Ross or the urinal thing. There isn't some great, Coliseum like architecture that's been made out of urinals like it doesn't even seem seem that they're bad art <laughs> they're funding or like really patronizing to the level that you'd expect as a baseline well i guess it kind of depends um first of all we don't know what how much art bezos and and zuck are kind of sitting on it's possible that they have entire museums built underground in the mojave desert that no one knows about they have like that amount of money to throw around. Maybe this will be uncovered at a later date. Uh, maybe it's important to um, discuss uh, maybe like why art? <laughs> I know that's like a really fucking basic question, but what exactly is the purpose of art? And because that, that, that discussion would be related to um, how we evaluate art. So uh, Gisoni said that art is, modern day art is a form of money laundering and I mean, I, I don't have like a strong basis to disagree with because the modern art world is really fucking weird. 
there's no coherency to what exactly becomes highly valued and who gains from it. Uh, it tends to be auction houses or hmm, auction homes tend to buy things from up and coming artists and then they spin it around and sell it for millions of dollars. And the people that buy it, it's hard to discern exactly what their motivation is besides attaining the status of being able to say, hey, like, let's have a dinner party in my mansion. I have like $123 million Picasso painting hanging over my dining room table. It's unclear exactly what the end goal is uh, in this case. Just uh, just a note. It's, it's um, sorry, what was it that you said you've seen? Uh, auction home? Oh, yeah. It's... <laughs> It's auction house. <laughs> you were right the first time. It's auction house. <laughs> Just, yeah, I love it. I love that. Auction cottage. <laughs> Sorry, please continue. I had a, I had a, I had a German ex-girlfriend. She didn't know what the word for pie chart was. And so she just translated it in her head and she said, Hey, can you help me with data cakes? <laughs> <laughs> And data cake makes, I think, like more sense than a pie chart. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so there you go. So yeah, why why art? What exactly is the point of of art when we're talking about the aristocracy commissioning art? What are they trying to gain, and why and why should their tastes matter? Great, Jasoni. So I, I was. This is actually something I wanted to go into before you even brought this up is just a natural continuation of it, but it's, um, there used to be a sense of, um, communal art that is, um, essentially dead now, or rather nowadays art is, um, to be consumed. It is not participatory art. And back in, um, you know, let's say 150 years ago, anytime before that art was always for some communal purpose, right? So the guy wasn't just, you weren't just commissioning art just to have it on your wall. Well, you wouldn't just commission um, like an opera or, uh, you know, a fugue or something like that. You would do it for some occasion. So the new bishop is, you know, being elected or, you know, something along the lines where there's, there's a funeral or a wedding. Um, and the same was true of religious art and, um, you know, statues or like the Sistine Chapel, right? That was commissioned to be a very specific space for the church with a specific ritual purpose. And, and, and even still, it still kind of functions as communal art. It's still this... Thing the Sistine Chapel still exists and it's something that we can all share in. It isn't just art for its own sake, and I think that's one of the issues with, I, I guess, the the, the postmodern artists that they kind of they it, it became very self aware. It, it became this this idea that um, everything is just fashion, right? Is we construct what is valuable, and so we're always the whims of you know just whatever the trends are going on, and so the art itself is a about the trends is that the art is trying to answer questions about what art is, or it's trying to be kind of this meta triply self-aware thing. You can't do anything with sincerity. Everything has to be dripped in this ironic hyper awareness of, you know, the construction of your own aesthetics. And unfortunately nobody can actually live like that because people like being in their communities. They like beautiful spaces around. They like these things. And, and so we don't train people to make communal art anymore. It just isn't, done. We don't have that as part of, and so because our institutions training people aren't producing people like that, then the, you know, the modern day daddies of today, like Bezos, they can't 
commission it. Could you explain what you mean by communal art in preferably less than one paragraph? <laughs> um, I think I could summarize uh, what I think Great Chisoni's getting at. Art funded by rich patrons for mass consumption. So the Sistine Chapel, um, the Medicis, and probably a collection of other Renaissance rich guys funded the Sistine Chapel on the assumption that it would be observed by the masses, or same with the David or or the various fountains around Florence and Rome. Yeah, I, um, I think the quintessential examples would be Homer and the Bible, and that Homer, I mean, you know, the Iliad, the Odyssey, they were <laughs> religious texts that were read to people. Um, the Bible, we still, I mean, it's still the one bit of communal art that's most widely used. We use it in communal spaces all over the world. Um, that's the kind of art that I think was trying to be emulated. So what's the difference between art that a, a patron created because they wanted to, you know, send a message about something or commemorate some occasion and they created this or commissioned this piece of art for the masses versus some individual artist or whatever, just doing that themselves. Like, why, why is that a difference that, Kulak. you know, well, it matters? The artist isn't doing it for themselves. They're doing it because they expect it will, it will sell to some speculator on art market. So that presumably creates incentives. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about art more generally, not pure, like the literal physical art market. But like artists, musicians, you know, great Sony. status and profit. Uh, the the incentives; those incentives are still there with the patron, but the patron itself adds a human element. To sort of, there's this element of taste that is uh, it's a person curating things, like a literal person making decisions, versus somebody who's creating something to line up with the incentives of the market or of status games that people play together. And the latter is sort of uh, inhuman or Molochian. It, it sort of it doesn't produce things intentionally because you're always trying to please some kind of um, super entity. See, I'm not I'm not convinced that the the this kind of incentive structure or the market or you know what we're talking about has actually done what you're saying it's done because and in the in particular I'm thinking about the music industry uh you know obviously artists produce music that they expect to be popular they expect people to like uh every artist is looking for you know the next big hit everyone wants to have a number one hit that's i'm not gonna argue about that but it seems inaccurate to me to say that everyone is being maligned or uh driven to produce lower quality work or anything like that because of this incentive, because you see this variety of music and people creating, you know, multiple albums, even when they have very few listeners and it's clear that they're not really, it's not that they, you know, have a 95% probability that, Oh, I think this is going to be the breakout album. It's there's some sense of they like this kind of music. They want to create music. They it's part of their self-expression. And so, you know, I'm not. Yeah, I'm just not sure that the 
lack of a uh, 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 patron is actually creating so much of a problem. Kulak. Well, we kind of did see this happen in the modern era with Star Wars. Essentially, George Lucas striking out on his own in this kind of Promethean moment creates the first movie, gets obscenely rich, and then the real golden era of Star Wars happens from, like, film two to, like, arguably, arguably, like, even during the Christmas the special. Episode three. Christmas special, absolutely. But even during the the prequel season, you had amazing video games being produced, amazing books being produced. George Lucas is, he was the old carver whose hands started, started shaking. He couldn't chisel right. But, but as a patron overseeing the Star Wars empire and being the final sign off on everything that happened in Star Wars under his patronage, truly amazing art got produced and it evaporated almost the second he sold it that you don't have like the Timothy Zahn books or like the Empire at Wars or the Knights of Old Republics really being produced pretty much as soon as that patron figure is gone because it goes from from one guy at the top going, oh, what would be good and cool? Like what would be, how good could this be to having a committee that says, what's the most risk averse thing that won't get me individually singled out and fired? I'm not exactly clear on the difference between creating art for communal consumption and something like pop music. The only thing I can identify is that what Great Jasoni is describing is that a patron is in charge of initiating it and bringing it forth to the world. But how is that a material distinction? Uh, so, I mean, pop music is generally, uh, I mean, to go like full snobbery on this is that I, I think music's basically been shit since bebop in the forties. Um, and I, I think largely it's because of terrible incentive structures. And I mean, just in the microcosm of bebop, I think that was, you know, there's a difference between mass consumption and consumption within a local culture of people that all have good taste trying to produce something for themselves that they may come together with this kind of aesthetic appeal, you know, like it, once you try to appeal to the entire mob, then things become a lowest common denominator. And I, I think, I mean, pop music is communal in a sense, but it, it, it's very much passive. It's very much, you know, you, you people show up together to concerts and, you know, they'll, they'll sing along. But I, to me, there's just something disgusting about the scale there is that it's a lack of intimacy is that you're there with a, you know, 50,000 strangers or, you know, something like that. And um, I, I think where we see communal things is maybe in, uh, I guess you have indie music scenes or you have people playing smaller venues and bars and you can know the musicians personally or um, you can participate as well as that there used to be this older expectation that um, everybody would play an instrument because we didn't have recordings. But now because things, because we can just copy music whenever we don't have to play it, then we have music has become almost this background noise, pop music. You know, yeah, some people sit and listen to it, but mostly instead of actively listening to it, it's kind of you have it on while you're doing something or it's on a restaurant or it's on just anywhere you go out in public. It's just there's this thing that's blaring just to be there, just to take up space. It doesn't have this purpose of coordinating everybody together in the village around it. You can't all sit by the fire and dance and sing your ancient songs that you learned when you were a boy. You have to. Uh, you're always at the tyranny of the market to kind of tell you, oh, yes, this is what we're all listening to right now. This is what's on the radio right now. It isn't so much participatory as we're all just kind of like on our knees drinking from the the, the fountain of the market. Um, I didn't want to be so vulgar about it, but it, it 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't really see how we are brought together by it. I'm I'm having trouble following your your logic here because I I find I'm identifying some contradictions. So correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. But you're yeah. simultaneously decrying fifty thousand people appreciating a single work of art in a festival, mm-hmm. while also saying that it the audiences are not small enough. And so what I I'm not sure exactly what the the ideal is here. Like what exactly, what can you describe what your ideal form of communal, your ideal form of art created for communal consumption is? Because when you say that, I I still think of pop music. I don't think you've, you've explained why it doesn't work except by kind of like arbitrary metrics of saying this crowd is too big. It needs to be smaller. So I'm trying to think of the most autistic way to phrase it, essentially, because I, I think so much of this is like a subjective kind of it's a subjective feel is that there is a there is a feeling of community that is lost. And I don't think it's the same. I think there is a clear distinction between a sort of people that know each other that are together in a space and people that just all happen to show up at the same building because they wanted to see a concert. Right. It's like it's not one is done for like, okay, like, uh, let's say Kanye West comes to town. I love Kanye West. I would drop everything I'm doing and go see that. And then there's a whole bunch of other people that also like that. But we're, what's bringing us together is that we're all consumers and we're all consuming the same thing. But I mean, right? you, well, you can identify niche areas of fandom. So metal, yeah. goth, you know, Skrillex, when he first started, like no one really knew about dubstep uh, until it blew up. Uh, so, I mean, there, there, de- there's definitely like obvious examples of these small tightly tightly knit communities that congregate around uh, a topic that most of the mainstream ignores or dismisses i mean of course they exist i'm not saying that like none of this exists it has just been drowned out overwhelmingly by the 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 whims of what is popular is that these things are niche yeah but how how exactly is this drowned out because it seems to me that they exist in harmony you can go to your Kanye West uh, concert with, you know, whatever, 100,000 people in a single stadium. And then Friday night, you can go to like a six hour dubstep uh, DJ set. I, yeah, I mean, you can do that. I mean, it's not that it doesn't exist. I suppose it is available for everybody. It's just not. A, I mean, I don't think any of that niche art is very good for one. But two, it is. Well, and, and it's uh, it's not very good because we're in this specter of what the market decides is that is niche things in reaction to kind of this overwhelming market force of sort of um, just not very interesting art. And so even if you're in a niche thing and you're immersed in this culture of pop and then you're reacting to it and you're making this little, it just doesn't, I, I, I just, in my ideal, and I guess this is all connected. It's, it, it's hard to say. I, I'm sort of all over the place here, but there there is a sense that the, institutions that produce good artists have been lost. And so I also don't see how that niche art is really that interesting, but like even, okay. In, you know, in the Skrillex and, you know, okay. That we're all niche dubs, but like that, that we're all getting together just to see, you know, this little thing that we like that's dubstep that doesn't automatically make it communal necessarily because we're still coordinating around the dubstep. We're not coordinating, like we're not transcending that in any way. We're not, like, like, why would the dubstep exist at all? Why does dubstep need to exist in the world? Why do we need a Skrillex? What is the purpose of this art? It's not, is it just here for some people to sit around and listen to it? Like, if you want to go and show up there, and, I mean, that's fine, but it isn't. Um, communal art serves a kind of a purpose for the community beyond itself. It's not just there to take up space. It's not. 
I I'm I've become much less clear slash uh, agreeing less with your argument over time, right, Jason? I uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, like this is something I've been th- I was thinking about you know as we were kind of spinning up this episode, people saying that you know music sucks today or music's not good anymore or whatever, and that's something that my dad used to say to me and I used to just be like, Oh yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Whatever. Sure. Seems right. And then I started actually spending my own time and effort, you know, listening to music and seeking out music that I liked and actually paying attention to it. And if you do that, you'll almost certainly find, at least one genre and probably several artists who are relatively popular as in mm-hmm. probably, you know, millionaires who you really enjoy and who many, many, many other people, you know, also obviously enjoy. And then I'm not clear on still on what the communal, the difference between communal art or not. I think we have to get more granular about the purpose of why a given piece of art is being produced because you seem to be saying that, I don't know, perhaps the majority, not all necessarily, but the majority of art today, especially popular, quote unquote popular art is just kind of buffeted by the winds of whatever's popular at the time and the trends and the new fashions. But that doesn't apply to individual artists. Like if you drill down to any individual artist, you will see that yeah, maybe that some become more poppy, so to speak, over time. That's a thing that's happened. Uh, you know, Taylor Swift has been accused of that, switching from country to pop, things like that. But uh, it's not the, the same artist keeps creating the same type of art over time. You know, the same musician has the same style of music over time. And the reason they're doing that is because almost all of them like to make music and they enjoy the type of music they create and they're doing it because they think other people will enjoy it other people will like it other people will find you know relatable messages or happiness or whatever in the music uh in the lyrics in the beat and i'm you know i don't know why that's any different in any meaningful way from uh this kind of more institutional sense of communal art so this is quickly uh, turning into a dog pile, and I want to make sure that Gracious Sony has full full opportunity to respond and make his case. Um, I think you have a really low bar for a what art can be, and two, I think you have way too much stock into the choices of the individual, and really like freedom is a meaningful concept in general. Um, and I, I've, I mean, I've been like a broken record about this for the entire. Uh, every episode I've been on, but I think that like that you like something is not evidence that it is good. Um, at least not relative to other things that you could be liking if you had better taste is that if you could appreciate <laughs> the good art, you would see that it is so much better than the art that you like. And I, and you can still like it. It can still bring you happiness. I mostly listen to music that I think is just kind of, you know, it, it makes me happy. It brings me pleasure. Uh, and I'm glad it exists and it's easy to listen to and it's nice, but there is other music out there 
that it's just such a deeper experience. It's like, a, it's like I'm glimpsing the mind of God and I just haven't seen anything besides maybe Charlie Parker in the past 100 years that really comes close to that. And it isn't, uh, and part of that is just, uh, I think it's just technical mastery. I think it's just certain, you know, incentives. I mean, we can argue about why it's been caused and even everything I'm saying is just kind of speculative because it just seems to have disappeared. But, and, and people do get transcendent feelings from, you know, pop music all the time. And I mean, it's not even like these things are like gone or that's the only thing that's there. It's just that, it can be so much more than just, oh, I enjoy this or, oh, the artist wins. Like if, um, you know, it's not like I'm saying that artists don't have any autonomy or that they don't, um, you know, like they will make the music they like to make against the market sometimes. Um, but that doesn't mean that what they like to make doesn't suck. It, it doesn't mean that they have any kind of uh, just the artists of old. Again, if you go back to the box, these were, you know, it's it's a whole family of child prodigies that have just been building on general generational wisdom for God knows how long, and just you know, immersed in this very strict discipline where you know you're expected to improvise, you know, seven voices once at the age of seven, or else they're going to beat the crap out of you, and um, and you just keep doing that until you have somebody that's born that's like you know has an IQ of 180, and then can go in and just create these things where you could sit there and study it for your entire life and still not really understand it because it's so far beyond you. And then I can go on Spotify and I can just click it. Bach wrote, you know, thousands of hours of music. It's this ridiculous thing that just exists there and that we're not getting an equivalent to that. And, and I guess, I mean, maybe you just have to see it to believe it, but I, I would say the same thing about, you know, the Genesis and Homer and Shakespeare is that there's just certain people that I don't know. It's not just, pleasure that you're getting out of it. it's not just the seeking of something of oh i like this because i mean you can like tons of stuff i mean I, I don't know that's just such a low bar is that there can be um you can go much further with a deeper expectation of beauty that is divorced from pleasure seeking kulak you wanted to respond yeah i'd say the like i i feel something that great jasoni is getting at and and I'd say a massive amount of it comes down to time preference and time pressure. So probably one of the greatest films of all time, regularly in the top 10 lists, is John Carpenter's The Thing. John Carpenter had directed like five movies in rapid succession before it. He was at the height of his game, and he directed probably one of the most daring movies of all time, used effects and techniques that had never really been, been used before and some that haven't been, really been used since and produce something that 40 years later is still regarded as state-of-the-art, cutting-edge, one of the best stories ever told, if anything, more relevant today than it was in the 80s. And Carpenter achieved the peak of aesthetic perfection, and it killed his career, because in the six months immediately after release, it didn't make money, and he wasn't really able to make a comparable movie in the next 40 years, despite the fact that within the next 40 years, it came to be regarded as the greatest film of all time. And that's something that you just didn't see with earlier generations of artists who could depend on patronage. You know, if you released, you know, your version of The David, and people were like, eh, I'm not really fond of it, but it sucks to be you. Carlos de Medici funded it to be in that square, and people warmed up to it within the, like, the next two, three years, well, Michelangelo still has his position. He can still produce statues. Whereas today, the time horizons are so short that if you produce something 
that doesn't work in the next two, three months. It could end your career, even if you achieve some height of aesthetic perfection. So, so Kulak isn't, I'm the first, the counterfactual that I'm thinking of is that, you know, the, the maybe throughout the 20th century, the studios acted as the patrons and you can only get work done if you had studio executives backing you. That did have an effect. I'd say that the the Hayes Code was imposed by the studios and probably did far more damage to the art form than even all the studios' lavish funding could benefit it. And that was imposed by the studios. But you did see heights of aesthetic achievement during the studio era that haven't really been matched since. There isn't really any film that has matched the scale and grandeur of Ben-Hur since... And you can name dozens of movies like that. Um, the original Gone with the Wind similarly hasn't really been matched in terms of, of scale and aesthetic achievement. So you do have a lot of achievements coming out of the studio system due to that patronage type setup. The problem is, though, the studios were still broadly after economic games as opposed to translating their money into cultural gains. So they still wound up smothering a great amount of art. Trace. Wait, have those achievements not been matched? There are two things that I would uh, cite in terms of those specific achievements being matched. One, I personally am honestly not at all a fan of, but uh, I think it is a remarkable achievement in film regardless, which is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where you saw storyline take place over some, I don't know how many movies there are, dozens, I'm going to look silly estimating, (laughs) some 30 movies that all achieved incredible mass appeal tapped into what I thought were a lot of fairly tired, repetitive plot lines that also seem to have connected with deep enough archetypes for people to really respond in force, uh, created this incredible overarching world that cost billions of dollars to do and really did something unmatched in scale and scope in films that that comes to mind as one example of something in the modern day that, whatever my opinion on it, is a remarkably notable artistic achievement. And then one that I think is actually a good artistic achievement, less in scope, but also the same genre, even though I don't even like the superhero genre, is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which I would highlight as specifically one movie I do expect to stand the test of time. And really, I don't know that there are there are movies in the past far back where I'd look and say, oh yeah, this is clearly unambiguously superior to this movie. I think it could stand up against just about anything, uh, along with some other recent movies, but those are the ones I'll highlight. Great, Jasoni. I think there's an argument to be made that, I, I mean, it, it, it depends on the art form, but I don't think that it is impossible that works of a canonical quality are still being produced today. And almost certainly, you know, some exist. The issue is that given so much time, we can very clearly see, we can trust the historical curation methods to um, give us a list that is fairly reliable of, yes, here's 3,000 years of wisdom on what is good, while as we don't actually know what is good, at least collectively. I mean, individually, we can decide right now. We can uh, we can each suspect, yes, this is one of those movies that will stand the test of time, this or that. Um, but if we're using that as our metric, um, we just we simply don't know yet. There hasn't been enough 
distance from now to the older works. I mean, even just in the 20th century, we're still digging through the wreckage. There's just so much of it. And I, I suspect we won't know what is truly canonical until, you know, a couple hundred years from now. And so just given limited time, if you have limited time to consume things, you have a list of reliably good versus, well, these could theoretically be good. And maybe I think they're good in certain instances. And here's, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Is that there's, there's, it, it seems to me that there's an obvious incentive to go after, like there's an obvious reason to read Shakespeare if you like reading. You know, it just, it, it just kind of seems like a no-brainer to me. Well, Trace. There's a list of things that are obviously good, but to be specific, it's a list of things with references. You need piles and piles of other references, many of which you won't have to understand. Things localized to other times. Things that have stood the test of time, yes, but nonetheless use different language, different conventions, different everything to the modern ones. And therefore, simply by being old, they end up having a much, much higher barrier, not a barrier showing great artistic merit, but simply a barrier of cultural distance that more recent works don't have. And I'm not framing that as a bad thing. I'm not saying like, Therefore, people shouldn't read the canon. But rather, therefore, you can make the case, yes, that, oh, yes, someone who has limited time and limited knowledge should go back and look at things that have stood the test of time. But I think you can also make a really strong case for, therefore, they should be drawn to whatever great works their culture, their current present day, is circling around and appreciating and noticing because those are the ones that have lower barrier to entry and more directly convey those same themes to them because the themes never really change in a way that they personally can appreciate. Is the point of art just to appreciate themes? That seems very shallow to me. It's not. It's not just to appreciate themes, but I think appreciation of and absorption of the themes of it, the beauty of it, the aesthetic experience of the whole thing is an enormous part of it. Mm -hmm. And if someone is having that aesthetic experience with the Marvel movies, and then they turn to Shakespeare and they're like, this is exhausting, it's a slog, it's pain for me to read, and I don't understand most of what's going on without reading a bunch of guides of understanding it, which is a lot of people's experience reading Shakespeare, I think that person has a really legitimate case to look for great works from recent times that are more directly and more clearly comprehensible to them. In 200 years, school kids are going to be looking at just these like holographed screens of these memes that are like six deep fried layers deep from 2020 and just going to be like, what the fuck were they doing? Or they're going to watch TikTok videos and think, oh my god, this is boring. When are they going to get to the good part? <laughs> there was a meme recently that was incredibly well produced. That was the Museum of Memes. I'll see if I can find it and share it with you guys. It was like the pinnacle of like the pro-Trump like meme ecosystem Like after four years, five years of development. It was... <laughs> so I, I, would, I would echo Tracing's, I guess... Uh, advice for anyone that finds Shakespeare a slog. My my standard for art is is pretty low, and I mean that 
kind of in a good way. The ultimate goal for me is to have a great aesthetic experience or have a deep emotionally resonant experience that comes from consuming or appreciating or looking at or viewing or listening. I don't care how uh, that comes from interacting with, with some type of work. So I would consider like early nineties techno fantastic art because it just immediately riles up uh, tremendous uh, emotion and conveys this excitement and this vibe that is really difficult to replicate in other mediums. Not everyone's going to have the same interaction with, with that specific art. Like they'll listen. Now, not everyone listening to La Bouche, Be My Lover is going to have the same reaction that I do. But because I have that, I consider it great art and that's sufficient for me. It doesn't need to have this uh, extended ecosystem of art critics that have to give me the approval for it. Great, Jasoni. I mean, that sounds like an atheism, essentially. I mean, that, that sounds like to me the position of somebody who doesn't believe in beauty. And I, I don't mean that like in an offensive way, but it's like at that point, we've reduced the whole world to mere pleasure seeking. And the whole thing is, well, Shakespeare makes me sleepy, so I shouldn't read it, is essentially how I would. And I, I mean, I don't mean to say that to caricature the positions, because like I, I, well. The other thing to add to Shakespeare is that people, people listening to it today or reading it today are experiencing it in a completely different context. And there's an excellent video of a Shakespearean actor who, at least like through some diligent research, have found what most likely the original pronunciation is. And when they recite it in the original pronunciation, i.e., you know, Old English, then they find out a lot of hidden meaning, a lot of puns, a lot of innuendo mm-hmm. that you wouldn't necessarily appreciate as a modern English speaker. So you know, going to the theater and listening to Shakespeare speak in this like body and street level language is a very different experience from today where you pick up a book and you're like, I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And then you have like another book that explains it. And supposedly you're supposed to like walk away with this like sense of awe and wonder uh, when you're, you're not being measured up on the same level. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with that. And I, I don't know that I would say that like, I think most people probably shouldn't read Shakespeare, but I also think most people shouldn't read at all is that they're just better off watching television is that like, I mean, just the, the quality of what is being written nowadays. It's just, I mean, like there's not, you know, most of the population couldn't even handle the New York times. That makes them sleepy. And that's, you know, that's written at a fairly middle brow level um, to get up to Shakespeare is that requires, um, it's a lot of research. You have to learn, you know, a, a good amount of vocabulary that doesn't exist anymore. And, um, you know, his grammar's weird and you have to understand, uh, you know, the poetic structures and the genres he's responding to as an influences and the, the trends going on in Britain at the time. I mean, it's just this whole project. It's not fun necessarily. I mean, it is, if you're like a weirdo, I mean, like I, I, I get like a Stockholm syndrome. I think that stuff is fun now. Um, but only because I force myself to appreciate these things until it's like, now I kind of enjoy them. So what I fear about these discussions is that there's a confounding variable in the form of signaling, where you signal your devotion to art and you signal your sophistication by devoting yourself to art that is largely inscrutable without some serious devotion in terms of time, education, and resources. So it's hard for me... It's hard to disaggregate the people that are using this as a form of signaling to to tell everyone, look how cool I am, how smart I am. I, I can I can fuck with Shakespeare. I can appreciate Shakespeare, and you can't from genuine appreciation. And I'm not necessarily accusing you of doing that, but mm-hmm. I would like to to hear from you in terms of how to whether we should care to 
discern what the motivation here is and how. So yeah, most people who look at this stuff are doing it for signaling. I, I don't disagree with that. I don't see how it follows that just because that is true, that the work does not have some sort of merit to it that is beyond other works. It could simply just be that we as a society have lost our ability to appreciate merit because human beings are inherently uh, status-seeking creatures. But secondly, I think that these things have largely lost status, is that there's this um, being a snob in any sense, uh, you know, in academic circles, if you are quoting Shakespeare nowadays, um, you are quoting a dead white male, is that the, the, these things have been, uh, the, the canon has been under attack since, I mean, really like the 20s. But I, I mean, you know, and we're still sort of taught things and there's some, you know, kind of conservatives that argue for this, but largely they are all low status. Ben Shapiro is not a high status figure. He is routinely mocked by anybody who has power. The only people that advocate for any of this stuff, or if you go into classical music circles, right, the opinions I am stating are, are, are heresy. They're not, uh, people would call me a racist for saying that such and so music is better than other music or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's not, and, you know, again, most of the music I listen to is like, I mostly listen to hip hop. Like it's not, I, I just, I still, I do it with the awareness that it's not the same thing. A anyways, I, I would contest that in today's world that that would be status seeking is that maybe that would have been status seeking back in, you know, the 19th century. But nowadays there's really not much status to be gained by reading Shakespeare or, you know, quoting it or this or that. People are just going to think you're a fucking weirdo. I disagree with that. I think there's plenty of status to gain, but it, it depends on like which demographics that you're trying to impress. So if you're, if you're trying to impress uh, members of the professional managerial class who love reading the New Yorker and have dinner parties with wine, then yeah, if I like walk in there and say, oh yeah, I just like finished reading uh, Ulysses for the second time and I'm starting to really understand the theme, you know, that's that's going to have a much more, Im much bigger impact than saying, I fucking love the new Dua Lipa album. <laughs> is it? I, I don't, I think that's kind of a backwards reading of the, the, the PMC is that I think the PMC is largely, they have bad taste. Maybe I shouldn't say the PMC. It's more. It's more like whatever you would consider like the elite gatekeepers. Like maybe uh, uh, members of the art world in New York City. If I if I walk in there, it's it's going to have a different reaction. Members of the art world in New York City are all on your side. Is that the 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 dominant ideology in the art world is um, that everything's just kind of fashion that the low is just as good as the high and that you know we, we must and i mean they do have their own like they have their own status game they play with like their weird art right and so they have their own bits of snobbery but they all kind of they trade in hot takes about how oh like these sacred cows are all dumb and then people who think the sacred cows are aren't you know like it, it's become this infinitely self-referential bit of irony and that there's been some attempts to get out of it and you know it kind of varies i don't know I might be describing the New York of like 20 years ago or 40 years ago. I'm not, I've never been there. I, I think we're underestimating just how unpopular the canons have become among high status people is that they're really only like a right wing thing. Like maybe like Boris Johnson and the, the Tories might read it, but I don't think the other side or especially what is coming to power in like the, the younger generations, I think of like kind of the more socialist side of the left. Um, they don't really have as much power, but kind of, institutionally and in culture they do and generally their ideology is also they're against shakespeare they're against i think you overestimate a little bit the power or reach uh, perhaps that the left has with respect to you know institutional canon choosing trace 
I think one response that I think is directly important to make here, and it's not my own response. It comes from uh, Gemma, and you've, I believe, read it, uh, Great Jasoni, but I think it's important to include in the context here. She was saying that the idea that they don't respect the canon is deeply weird to her, but really understandable, because she travels in those social and intellectual circles, and Great Jasoni travels in different ones. And uh, she cites Ta-Nehisi Coates, who was fond of uh, quoting Ralph Wiley and saying that Tolstoy is the Tolstoy of the Zulus, that the Zulus don't have some other writer who's their Tolstoy, because only Tolstoy is Tolstoy. And he has, the breadth of his insight has potential to be useful to people in radically different contexts. Uh, she mentions that he had a series of blog posts titled Into the Canon, where he was undertaking to read classic works of both fiction and nonfiction. And that it was a seriously undertaken and sincerely undertaken project, despite this being someone who is very, very well known for advocating, changing, or broadening the canon. And me not knowing that uh, before she mentioned it suggests to me that there's more I don't know about people in that sphere, whether or not they have the same deep respect for it. I think more of them do than you're crediting. Kulak. Well, there's a double think in respect to the canon. The same people who will say that Shakespeare is a dead white man and we don't need to teach him will be from the same social circles that keep Shakespeare festivals remarkably well-funded in yeah. some circumstances. The same thing happens with, for example, Hamilton, where, oh, the founding fathers, dead white men who were racist and we shouldn't tell their stories. We should be telling the stories of black men and people of color, the stories of women. Oh, also, there's an all-black cast telling the story of the Founding Fathers. How brave, how, how perfect, let's throw as much money as we can at it, despite the fact that there isn't a single person of color character in the entire play of Hamilton, because there's a double-think there. They're trying to escape this status that the canon can't not have because it's the canon, or that history can't not have because it's history and has built it up, but they're also desperately trying to latch on to the status that it has. It's a weird double thing that, that like you can't really reject the canon, but people are desperately trying to. So Trace. I hear a lot of cynicism in that that I don't really share. For example, I think Hamilton I mean, I know it's not cool now that Hamilton is popular among the Hoi Polloi to still unironically like it, but I think it is fantastic work that uh really demonstrates not a cynicism, but determination to explore the canon in new and meaningful ways, adapted to their values to whatever extent, yes, but a sincere appreciation for it. And I think you're talking about things like that as a cynical status leech uh, perspective, but I don't, I don't know that it is that. Certainly not in their inside view, because people very rarely have that deeply cynical perspective of their own behavior. But I think even from a fair outside view, I think there are a lot of people who are, yes, disappointed that when they look at the canon, they see mostly men and mostly white men, and they're not shy about saying that. And a lot of times they're not shy about getting really, really upset about that. But at the same time, I don't see them saying, therefore, their work has no value. Therefore, their work should all be discarded. And I think representing it as them trying to tear it down and them saying their work should all be discarded is 
usually, I'm not going to say always, but usually not an accurate representation of what they're trying to do or what they feel they're trying to do in approaching it. Kulak. I kind of disagree. The kind of postmodern criticism of the canon and the historical tradition that it's old white men and that it reifies the power and narratives of the old white hierarchy. That's a valid criticism. It's fairly accurate, especially when you look at stories of the founding fathers, literal slave owners rebelling against rulers across the sea to found their own rule. And that's an incredibly valid mode of attacking to say, no, we want the stories of the low, we want the stories of women, we want the stories of, of people of color, we want the stories of slaves, we want the stories of, of poor people. And that entire avenue of kind of attack and criticism is completely incompatible with kind of a, a Hamilton mode of, of criticism or engagement with the classics where it's just, oh yes, we're going to tell exactly these stories, but we're just going to switch up the cast or add some modern flares to it. And those beliefs are held by the same people. Love for Hamilton is held by the same people who say, we need more stories of this or that. We need to reject the perspective of the abuser, the oppressor, the ruler. And it's just not really compatible. Great, Jasoni. I think we're taking Hamilton as too much of an example of something that is like representative of the left. And I think it's really more of a lib left phenomenon almost. And I don't like Hamilton. I think it's, eh, but um, I, I think it's almost an ideal use of the canon. And uh, although I wouldn't really put the founding father's story in the canon either, but in terms of like an American one, if there was one is that they're taking the past and they're building on it and they're adding to it, you know, they're taking what was good from it and then putting into it their own perspective, their own ideology, their own values to create something that's greater than something that they could have just done on their own without going to the past is that Hamilton is almost archetypally, you know, a proper use of, of the past. And I don't really, and, and we can notice like, you know, can, Hamilton was like, it seemed like this really shocking subversive thing when it came out in like 2016. And now it's kind of, it's uh it's like peak lib, it, you know, it's peak, like the, the actual left, I, I think, or, you know, the, the people to the left of the libs are um, quite either, you know, they're disgusted by it. It's this product of consumerism in the higher class and this and that, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's interesting, but um, something else I wanted to say is that the um, there's a sense in that the left is the only people that reads is that the, the right is kind of too dumb for the canon just in general. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I don't know what it is in psychometrics, something, you know, higher IQ people, they tend to be on the left and people with higher openness, they tend to be on the left. Um, and the left is also tends to be anti-tradition um, or they would like to push forward more than others. And so you, you kind of inherently get this contradiction in that, well, and, and especially those who love beauty also tend to be on the left, is that if you have any aesthetic sensibility whatsoever, if you're a creative person, if you're an artist, you tend to be a left winger and you want to push things forward. And I, I think, and I made a post about this, but I, I think that there's kind of this, um, maybe it's a biological trap in that the the most beautiful things that have been constructed, you know, they were constructed by our predecessors. And if we want to surpass them, we have to build on them. You know, you can't just like, if you sit down uh, in a dark room, you lock a kid and you give them no art instruction and no other works to imitate. And you just say, yeah, draw. Then after 20, 30 years, they're going to be making cave paintings. And you could greatly speed them up by giving them like an art history book and a book on here's all the techniques on how to draw that we figured out over the thousands of years. And here's all the, you know, aesthetic debates on you know, what you should draw and what you shouldn't and this and that. 
such a kid will produce much better works almost indisputably than the other one who has no influence whatsoever, although the former might be more interesting in some primal sense as a case study. Who knows? Um, and I, But I, I think it's this tendency that if you love beauty, you are inherently drawn away from the past. And yet, if you really want to make something beautiful, you kind of have to embrace it and then go beyond it. And I, I think generally, just as a society, we, we've fallen into this trap of just, oh, the the new, the now, um, the individual, I will produce something for my soul. This is my quote-unquote self-expression. And of course, the self is a social construct from the community. It's They can't be divorced. Trace. I agree with a lot of what you're saying, and I disagree with some of it. And I'm going to try to thread that needle here a little bit. Uh, first off, I think it's notable that you first take the care to separate Hamilton from the far left into liberals, which I agree. I think those are uh, definitely distinct things. And then you go on to portray the left as in control of a lot of these institutions. Because while they're certainly dramatically overrepresented in a lot of these high-status granting institutions, at the same time, they are, as they've uh, seen fairly repeatedly, as they've tried to extend that power, not really in control of them in any substantive way, that when push comes to shove, it is ultimately that more liberal perspective that tends to have the real societal sway. So there's that part where I think the dynamic you highlight between people being drawn towards the present and society having sometimes this myopically focused view on it while needing to build on the past is there. And in particular, there's a sense in which some of these institutions, uh, universities, for example, that were in large part held as the defenders of the past against the present, things like that, are much less so that than they may have once been. Yeah, I think it's l less extreme than you're presenting it as, and your views are have more traction and more appreciation among even high-status settings than you're crediting. Anything else to, to tackle on this topic? I could shill for Red Dead Redemption too. <laughs> that, would, that would be a conversation, actually. Yeah, no better way than to talk about horse balls. <laughs> Is it like full physics? I haven't played the game. <laughs> Do they? I don't. I don't remember if they have. If they render the horse balls. Is that a thing? Yeah. So I, the joke. Well, I, it wasn't really a joke. It was reported that. The level of detail that was put into Red Dead Redemption 2 was so maniacal that they uh, simulated the size of horse testicles as they change in size relative to the temperature of the environment. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yes, that's true. You could have just said yes to the full physics question. But. Yeah, but I wanted to give more detail as to... <laughs> yeah. It's not... I mean, it's easy to, get, to give balls physics. Like, every game since 2003 has had some physics emulation. This is this is like a little bit different in terms of the amount of resources that they were devoting. And it's a heuristic to, to showcase just how much thought they put into the rest of the game. Yeah, so that's kind of a good segue into what I think about this game, which is that it is just as good as, if not better, a piece of art than virtually anything you care to mention. The Iliad, the Odyssey, whatever. And this is not to compare them on literary merit or skill necessarily um but in terms of being art 
and in terms of the detail and the uh, the complexity and the the quality of the experience that's created in Red Dead Redemption Two is just it's astonishing and it's really cool. I think that we have this rather new form of art video games which has created all these opportunities for i mean just iterated uh interactive art basically and so red dead redemption 2 why we why i'm speaking specifically about that is as you seen mentioned the level of detail in the game is one part of it and the level of detail is just it's insane the the horse's balls shrinking and uh you know increasing in size as it becomes hotter and colder the animals in the game hunt each other so you can you know watch different species of animal fight each other the houses and the train tracks and settlements and things get built over time so you can literally go and find the end of the train track and watch the builders building the train track in the game and then that becomes train track that is used like uh, there's just thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of skill of training of education of cultural input that all the people that created this game have have coalesced and created this product that just just to kind of put it into a a short anecdote i have cried more and felt more emotion for characters in this game than I have for people, members of my extended family. <laughs> so. <laughs> so what you're saying is it matches the achievement of Dwarf Fortress. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have, uh, I'm, I'm sure we can talk about video games for hours, but concerning the topic at hand, I have a deep appreciation for the medium because it provides an alternate avenue of, of aesthetic experience. And uh, what I mean by that is there is a significant shift in terms of how you appreciate a work of art when you're put in the driver's seat and you're intended to adopt the experience at, uh, on its own. So, I mean, playing Just Cause 3 just makes me feel like a, a superhero uh, in ways that I would never be able to experience by just watching a movie. Uh, playing Europa Universalis gave me a chilling familiarity with how a medieval uh, dictator would actually think, or at least what would they be motivated by. And that's miles ahead more than anything that I would have gotten by just reading like a thousand page tome on on what people think the Habsburg emperor was thinking at this, at this point in time. Uh, so I, I appreciate them as a medium for providing this, this novel way of experiencing uh, art. And that kind of goes back to my point where I relatively, I have a relatively low threshold for what I consider art. And that's namely uh, invoking these significant experiences in people. Great. Jasoni, do you want to take a shit on video games? Well, I, I mean, I like video games. I, I think that they haven't, I mean, I think there will eventually be a video game canon or that there will be games that you could make such outlandish statements about. I I don't, I mean, I don't see why that wouldn't happen necessarily. But it's not the case now. I don't even know if it's not the case now because I can think of, I mean, probably Dark Souls is something that 
I mean, I wouldn't compare it to like Homer, but I, I think I, I think that's probably the best video game ever made. And I, I think specifically because of the aesthetic and, you know, and partly because of the experience and the rush you get. But I, I think it's such a contrast from what Red Dead Redemption 2 represents that I think in kind of looking at the differences, we can hash out what we care about in art. And I, I think Dark Souls is probably one of the best uses of video games as a medium because in it's not just that you're in the driver's seat participating in it, but it's that you're doing something fairly frustrating and unforgiving and rote. Like most of Dark Souls consists of you dying. You know, you're just kind of beating your head against the wall until you accomplish something. And I, I think it's unique in pretty much any art form. I can't think of other art besides other video games that do this. And that it's almost, it's like a commentary on willpower. It's a commentary on the will itself. And, and you, you feel it. You feel yourself as just, you know, I've died to this stupid, um, I guess people usually die in like the first or second, like these two gargoyles that come out, right? And you just sit there and you do that 30 times for like four hours and you're not having any fun. You're just pissed. Um, because just like a little thing, just like, oh, the tail comes at you and you just forget to push B and dodge or you did it slightly too early in the front, you know, and, and at some point you, you eventually beat the thing. And then it's just kind of, you get this rush that is, it's better than sex, really playing a Dark Souls game, but just beating any boss. <laughs> I, I can't think of a single sexual experience that compares. I don't know if that's true, but it, it is, it's pretty close. And I, I haven't played a video game that can quite induce that feeling in me. Uh, um, but even deeper than that is because <laughs> like all the things that Red Dead Redemption 2 provides, that's this big scale and there's all this detail, you know, in Dark Souls, like you talk to the NPCs and they have like these like canned lines that don't make any sense. And like the voice acting is bad and it's kind of ugly. Like even for like, like a 360 <laughs> game, like it just, it doesn't look very good. The lighting's all fucked up. Like it, it has these things. And yet there's something about the humanity in it is that it's kind of this one guy's like totalitarian vision, like just, in the level design of it is that everything, just the way the map is laid out is that everything intricately loops back together in like completely unexpected ways. Like coming back to the starting town, like you kind of, you find the secret. I don't even want to spoil the level design because it's like such a significant moment. It's even this one part and you find an elevator that like shouldn't be there. And it's like, oh, hey, what's this elevator? Where's this going? You get into it. And this is after you're like a couple hours into the game and you take the elevator and you just start going way, way down. And all of a sudden you're like in like the starting area after like this thing. And all of a sudden like your mind is just fucking blown that there was like this whole geography. It's like, like, it's like, like, you know, like you're driving around like a city and you have like a map of the city in your head. It's like, you're doing the same thing in the game. And then somebody just like connected everything in a way. And it's just so satisfying. It's so, you can't, I can't think of a game that can do that. It's just, it's gorgeous. That moment you describe has been cited by, you know, thousands of people at this point. And it, it amazes me how theoretically it's, it's fairly simple to, to create a level that loops around itself in, in such a manner. But the, that moment has been so thoroughly appreciated by people that I'm kind of surprised that it hasn't been used more often. Uh, especially, especially when you consider like the sequel, Dark Souls 2, which didn't had didn't really try to make compact levels with intricate pathways they they kind of move in their own in their own way like for example you take an elevator up and suddenly you find yourself at a castle on on lava which is amazing but it doesn't try to connect itself to the previous area in a coherent manner uh, but maybe that's like a benefit because it adds this air of fantastic aura to it 
Uh, the other thing that came to mind, Great Jasoni, is I can't help but notice that you have an affinity for art that gives you pain. And I wonder how much that has to do with your, uh, your Catholic background. Well, I don't have a Catholic background. I think I was, I was baptized Lutheran and I was an atheist for almost my entire life. But you're Catholic now, right? I am Orthodox, technically. Okay. Well, let me rephrase that. I, I wonder how much that has to do with your, uh, with your Christian background. Um, I mean, I, I, okay, I could get into a whole thing about how, like, the whole, like, obsession with pain in Christianity is kind of like it's a Catholic thing. And then later, um, kind of certain weird sects of Protestantism take it really far, I think. Orthodoxy is simultaneous. It's, like, it's super bleak, like, if you read, like, a book on it. Um, or you just read like these old Russian guys just talking about the world. It just like, they're just the most like, what's the word? They just, they just hate humanity. They just hate everything. They hate the whole world. You're just in this hell on earth and everything's horrible. And anything you do is going to fail and you're lying about everything all the time and you're awful. But like, also they love to sing and dance and they just love moments of pure joy and they love everybody and they love like the child. Like, it's like you have this contradictory view of like maximal hatred of the world that is like made possible by how much you love it. And I guess I'm like, I'm kind of quoting Chesterton here, but there's, I don't know if that's like an entirely accurate verb. Like I think because you love the world so much, then you're allowed to hate it more than even the most cynical pessimist could, because you have that, you you have Christ to ground you and, you know, but that that's a whole different tangent. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a temperamental thing because Dark Souls is pretty universally loved. I mean, I'm just going to point to like, the art critics, I guess, is just, it, it is a different aesthetic experience that I, I think is, it's unique to the medium. It's something that you could only do in a video game, which I, I guess there's something about that in the detail of Red Dead Redemption 2 that you could also get, but it just kind of seems it's more of like recreating life or it's just being very detailed or I'm doing this thing. But something about, something about Red Dead Redemption, or sorry, something about Dark Souls feels like almost arcadey. Like it feels like, purposefully video gamey it's not trying to create like ball physics out of reality it's trying to create <laughs> you could never get the experience of dark souls out in the real world except maybe by uh suffering for something that you care about except for which i think is kind of to some extent you know the point or the general algorithm of life is that you should find something very meaningful to you and then you should work on it and you should keep hitting against that wall until you achieve your goals and then do the next one and that's all I mean, that's not like a I love pain type of thing is that the beauty of Dark Souls is that it never feels cheap. It's so well constructed. Like Dark Souls 2 messes this up, I think, and that, okay, instead of two gargoyles, here's six of them. Oh, it's so hard. And then you're just like dying until you get lucky and kill something. Or like, it's not, it's not fun. Dark Souls has this something in the weightiness of it, something in the enemies. Like once you get good at Dark Souls, it's really easy. Like once you've beaten it once, you shouldn't be dying to a boss ever again. It's a lot easier than other action games. There's something in the learning curve of it, of that initial kind of conquering of the self um, that avoids too much of a painfulness, or maybe you are in pain, but it's like you always want to keep going. You want the reward. You want the cheese that I don't think you really get in, I can't think of anything else. I mean, Sekiro, I don't know. I mean, other games, older hard games, I think like old NES games kind of channel that where it's like you didn't have any like, you just had like three lives and it came over and you have to start away from the beginning. That's kind of a similar feeling. I don't know. Hey, sex is great and all, but y'all ever played Dark Souls? <laughs> <laughs> 
Jason, I feel like you would like Planescape Torment. Oh, yeah, fuck yeah. Probably the most spiritual game ever created. <laughs> Probably the best work of spiritual art, like, this century and Yeah, last. you should play that today. It, it feels, like, completely within your wheelhouse of... I actually downloaded it last time Kulak said this, and then I just haven't opened it. <laughs> <laughs> the canons and video games. <laughs> you guys were talking about the level design and that kind of epiphanous moment, and it made me think of uh metal gear solid 5 in in short basically every system in the game works together in this just absolutely seamless perfect way that is one of the reasons why it's widely considered one of the best video games of all time i mean if you go look up on metacritic and you know any other rating site the top rated games of all time it's top 10 top 20 whatever but just all the systems and all the the game design and the concepts and everything fit so perfectly together and the only reason i mention this is that for some reason i was reminded of that when you mentioned the kind of clever level design of uh dark souls and the way that metal gear solid 5's game systems felt almost exactly like that and so I think the point there being you can create those same feelings and those same senses of, you know, great epiphany and great achievement in other games as well. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not restricted to Red Dead or Dead uh, Dark Souls. It's interesting you would cite um, MGS5 since Kojima was spent like the first four games trying to like fake that experience. Like you'd be going through, like you'd be going through a hallway, like pressed up against a wall, sneaking, and there would be like pipes that are just going up, and there would be one loose pipe, and you'd you'd just be going along, and all suddenly the pipe would fall over and give away your position, and that would be the only pipe in the entire game that would, that would do that. But the entire game was filled with things, things like that, or you'd stay on the cold like for ten minutes, and next thing your character would have a cold and be sneezing while you're trying to sneak around. <laughs> Or you'd be used to, like, creeping under guards, like, who are standing on a cliff above you, your platform, and then all suddenly you're going along, one of the guards takes a leak, and you trip <laughs> on it, on, like, the wet surface, like, like stuff like that, like, like, because it would always be something different, you had to treat the world as if it was, like, a physical reality, because, like, anything, like, random physical could happen at any moment and of course once you play the game through you know exactly what all of them are because it's it's not randomly generated it's all scripted but it's interesting that he went from that to like actually getting to create a world that interactive <laughs> yeah i agree i like the faking of it better i mean i thought five felt like really like it almost i don't know it felt kind of like the systems like the gameplay itself is really good but there's something about, and I think this has to do with kind of like the game was maybe like unfinished. Like it just kind of, I don't know, it seemed mashed together and the story was kind of all over the place. And it, I don't know, it felt like there was like a whole third act that just didn't happen. And I don't really know, but just like in terms of like the core gameplay, like, yeah, actually, like I, I understand what you're describing, but something about like just in Metal Gear Solid 2, I'm thinking of, I mean, any of the first three really, it's just how fake the, like the faked experience to me is so much more meaningful than the thing I can recreate with like, oh yeah, here's this playground, like sneak however you want, like do whatever, like something about the freedom, just, I mean, it's like my authoritarian tendencies, but I just, I like, I like that feeling of like, oh my God, there's this pipe and it's like, 
like it's almost like a like a watching a movie or something. It's like there's this sense of um, what's the term? Like you're suspending your disbelief. Yeah, something about that feels kind of magical to me. You don't have in five as much. It, like it almost feels too real. Movie Gear Solid Four. You'll never get the experience again of playing Metal Gear Solid One in the first time you realize the guards will like follow your wet footprints, oh, yeah. and it's like it's like mind blown because. No, nothing had any physics before that. And of course, that never occurred again in the game. <laughs> Do you guys remember the Psycho Mantis fight in the first one? I never got the message that you're supposed to switch your controller. So I, I beat the game three times and I always dreaded that boss because you, the only way you can still like do damage except like, I don't know, like five out of six punches you throw miss. So every time I came across the Psycho Mantis fight, it was just this 20 minute slog that I hated uh, of me just like trying to punch Psycho Mantis and sometimes hitting him and then just slowly whittling down his health. And it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe a year or two later that I found out that you had to switch the controller. I just never got that, that message. That tells us that you come from a culture that is like primed you not to ask for help because like the entire game primes you up till then, like something's going wrong. Oh, talk to the guys on the yeah. codec. They might know what's happening. <laughs> oh, talk to the guys on the codec. Hey, we're we're going to talk to you about this thing. Oh, follow the rats to get into the facility. Oh, there are lasers there. Like they're interrupting you and giving hints and stuff. So like it says a lot that in three times playing the game. There's a classic about how you get the codec uh, address from the back of the CD case. Yeah, yeah. And me not really understanding how literal that was. There was another moment in the um, X-Men video game in Sega Genesis. There's a level where you beat it. Xavier tells you, okay, now like after you beat the boss, you have to reset the computer. And then you're just kind of sitting there going, what the, f- how do I, what button do I press to reset the computer? <laughs> and there was a moment where I was playing this with my friend co-op and I looked at him and I said, maybe we're supposed to reset the console. And he looked at me saying, no, that's fucking crazy. You, you can't do that. And I hit reset on the Sega Genesis. And that was the, the thing you're supposed to do. And that was this kind of like this transcendent moment where you just had to like take a risk of resetting your entire uh, progress up to that point because it was like the four, fourth level out of five or something. Yeah, that was, that was a cool moment. I think there's so much potential for video games. You can literally include every other form of art inside a video game and still have other mechanics and principles and physics and gameplay on top of it. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for VR, for one thing. All right, um, I think uh, I think we should wrap up. And by wrap up, I just mean say goodbye has anyone played um no no more no more talk about video games it's gonna last like three hours (laughs) roblox is just as good as chester (laughs) (laughs) that's the real message here thank you for that very spicy take and that that should be our like closing that that, that could be the title make it a title yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) uh yeah i'm sad we didn't get to talk about artillery doctrine but one day maybe that's for the future yeah one day next episode okay bye